You're listening to the Brooklyn USA podcast, an occasional audio love letter from Brooklyn to the world. And we're speakers of approximately 10% of the world's languages living right here in Brooklyn. We are the world. This season on the podcast, we're looking at how Brooklyn builds community through language. And why linguistic diversity is so precious for our world, our city, and ourselves. In 2019, the Endangered Language Alliance, a New York City-based nonprofit with a mission to document and support endangered languages, released its first ever interactive language map of New York City. Drawn from a decade of research and documenting over 700 language varieties at over 1,200 significant sites. For the first episode of our language season, we met up with the ELA co-director, Ross Perlin, to get an overview of Brooklyn's linguistic history. Here's Ross. New York is not only the most linguistically diverse place in the world from what is known, but maybe the most linguistically diverse place that there has been in the world up to this point. The question is, will that remain the case? Because New York is the recipient of all of this amazing linguistic diversity, but how much of it can survive here and how much are we doing to support it and to maintain and develop it? My name is Ross Perlin. I'm co-director of the Endangered Language Alliance. I'm a linguist, writer, translator based here in New York. New York City is arguably the most diverse city in the world. But don't take it from me, take it from our next guest, who's made it his job to map the city's languages, including ones that are highly endangered. What does that mean? The Endangered Language Alliance was founded in 2010. We're a small nonprofit. Our work is all over the city, and in some cases all over the world, although the real focus has always been on New York as this capital of languages. We are kind of an extended family of linguists, artists, community language activists, regular New Yorkers from all over who care about linguistic diversity in New York and do a variety of projects documenting endangered languages, supporting language revitalization projects, mapping languages, we get involved sometimes with policy, education, hosting classes in languages, children's books, whatever projects people want to work on to support linguistic diversity. Culture and language activist Nawang Garung has become a custodian of Mustang. Together with the Endangered Language Alliance here in New York, he is working to create a kind of Mustang Library of Congress, a digital archive that will preserve oral history, folklore, and song handed down over hundreds of years. There are so many voices that I never heard in New York City. When I conceived of the Voices of the Himalayas project, I wanted to record those voices and give them a platform. Our work at the Endangered Language Alliance has shown that there are seven to 800 languages that are spoken in the metropolitan area. 
You know, the question of what's defined as a language, what's defined as a dialect, this gets very complicated. So nerd out with me for a second. What is the difference between a dialect and a language? I think my favorite, sort of the classic quote about this is that a language is a dialect with an army and a navy. Uh, <laughs> basically the idea is that it's about political power. For linguists, we talk about mutual intelligibility, whether two people speaking, you know, the way they speak, how much they can understand each other. What our mapping efforts have shown, and this has been all released now at languagemap.nyc, our new digital language map, is that more than 10% of the world's linguistic diversity at least is here. It's really four to five times the number of what the census shows. The census is really inadequate when it comes to language. That's why we have done this project to really map the languages of New York. Data from the 2020 census is finally out after being delayed by the pandemic, and it shows the country is more racially and ethnically diverse now. The white non-Hispanic population declined for the first time in the nation's history, but remains the largest racial group, and overall the U.S. population grew just over 7%. In some ways, it's been the opposite of a census, uh, because we kind of started from the realization of all that the census was missing. ELA alone has been making recordings in uh, over 100 languages over the course of its existence, and almost none of them are represented on the census. So we immediately knew that there were all of these languages that were not in there. That includes, you know, larger languages as well as smaller, but, but most of these languages we're talking about people will have not heard of. They're primarily oral, indigenous, minority languages which don't have official support. In some cases are not well documented in terms of dictionaries, recordings, any of that material. And that has really been our focus as an organization. The way that we gathered the data and worked on this was ultimately thousands of conversations the map is built around the idea of significant sites, places like community centers or religious institutions or restaurants or parks or hometown associations are really important. People won't immediately say necessarily what language they speak if it's a less commonly known language. and They don't think anybody will know about it. They'll mention the larger language that they think people will know. So they'll say, oh yeah, yeah, of course, I speak Nepali. Nepali is my language. And then you say, oh, where are you from? And they'll say, oh, I'm from Limi. If you know the region, you know, oh, well, Limi is, you know, right up on the border with Tibet and, you know, the language is quite different from Nepali. And then you talk to them and, yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, we speak, we speak Limi. That's really the mother tongue and Nepali came later. So it's in kind of knowing how to ask and in having those conversations over time. My father, he got it from his father. His father from grandfather, all the way back. There are different ways of talking about endangerment, and there's endangerment on the global level versus endangerment at the local New York level. I think at the local level, actually, there's even heavier endangerment because it's just very difficult in New York City or in really any kind of immigrant diaspora context to pass on the language to the next generation if it's not a larger language. There are some rare and interesting cases. I mean, one of the notable cases in Brooklyn has become Yiddish in the Hasidic community, which now has cases of fourth generation transmission in Brooklyn. But that's very unusual. And obviously it's tied to the particular circumstances in that community. 
in Dembeis Hamikdash, in a Finkelacheder, sits the Almuna Bastion Alain. Endangerment at the local level in New York I mean, is heavy. In terms of how many of these languages that are spoken in Brooklyn are endangered at a global level, it might be something like half, and which is kind of around the number that a lot of linguists say of the world's 7,000 languages, up to half are, are often considered endangered just based on the two basic criteria of endangerment, intergenerational transmission, is it being passed on to children? And then number of speakers. You know, there are, there are languages in New York, there are languages in Brooklyn, which globally have, you know, fewer than a thousand speakers. Why are half of the world's languages now endangered? Why is this a global phenomenon now that seems to be accelerating? That is tied to kind of global historical reasons. And it's, and it's a, a thing that I think can be traced back at a macro level, you know, several centuries to colonialism. And now more recently in the 20th century to the rise of nation states, you know, that are promoting individual national languages at the expense of minority languages and the spread of capital and a kind of globalized economy where certain languages are privileged and people are drawn into these flows. But it's important to add that despite this discussion of global language endangerment and all of these forces, that we are also in a sort of new and kind of amazing period of language revitalization. Native American languages, many of which you know have been just under attack from English and the pressure to learn English and all of the forces that have gone into, you know, expulsion and dispossession of Native American communities. I mean, hundreds of languages that were spoken here and sort of little recognized and demeaned in every way by settlers. But now, challenging as it is, there are, I mean, globally, hundreds of language revitalization programs. UNESCO declared 21st February International Mother Language Day in 1999. The day also honors the Bangladeshi's fight for recognition for the Bangla language. 21st February is the anniversary of the movement to protect their cultural roots through their mother language. One of the very rare incidents in history where people sacrifice their lives for their mother tongue. When there's political sovereignty can be achieved, like in the case of the independence of Bangladesh, then you can really put a whole state behind the language revitalization. Places like Catalonia and Spain as well, or Basque country, have been able to, partly by gaining more political autonomy, also bolster their languages. Thousands have gathered for peaceful demonstrations in the center of Barcelona. The reason? A court decision that mandates 25% of all school subjects be taught in Spanish. The region of Catalonia has its own language called Catalan. Having sovereignty and having resources and being organized as a as a group can allow a community to sort of assert their language the term lenape sometimes the term Muncie is used as a, the variety of Lenape, but that would have been what was spoken in Brooklyn before the early 17th century and colonization. Brooklyn was also the place where enslaved Africans were sort of most prominent and were, were brought in the largest numbers. So there would have been African languages. Dutch would have been this 
important language across Brooklyn, maybe even into the early 19th century, on the large Dutch family farms that were worked by many enslaved Africans who also then would have been pressured to speak Dutch. In terms of the major thing that then happens is, you know, the development of Brooklyn after the Civil War, when it just grew by leaps and bounds and began to have a huge, mostly European immigrant population. And so it became a very important place for the Irish language, which is a highly endangered language. Brooklyn was actually the site of the founding of the first Irish language periodical in the world. So there was a period it was heavily, you know, Irish, heavily German. And then, of course, these next kind of big waves were Italian and Jewish heavily. The Italians were actually, for the most part, you know, southern Italians who spoke often highly local varieties of Sicilian, of what's called Neapolitan, and of, of Calabrese. And then in terms of that large Jewish communities that began to come in, Yiddish was the most significant, but you also saw the development of Ladino-speaking communities. And also some much smaller and, you know, now heavily endangered Jewish languages like Judeo-Crimean Tatar. By the late 19th, early 20th century, Brooklyn is this kind of hub of especially European immigrant linguistic diversity. After World War II especially, you begin to see this incredible Caribbean language diversity, an incredible variety of Spanishes that come into Brooklyn from all over the Spanish-speaking world. And then just about every kind of Creole, Haitian Creole, which you know derives from French, but is its own language. And then the range of English-based Creoles from every island in the Caribbean that come to Brooklyn. You know, and I'm not even talking about the varieties of English, every variety of English, especially African-American English, but also, you know, Gullah at one point, clearly, and maybe still today, a language brought by African-Americans to Brooklyn as well as to Harlem. It began in 1965 when Congress abolished the policy of excluding Oriental immigration. This bill says simply that from this day forth, those wishing to immigrate to America shall be admitted on the basis of their skills and their close relationships to those already here. After 1965, as immigration really opens up again, you see this deep diversification. Areas like, you know, Brighton Beach and Bensonhurst, which come to have people from the whole former Soviet Union, including, you know, the largest Central Asian population in the Western Hemisphere, people from, you know, across South Asia, coming into areas like Kensington. You begin to see African language diversity as well. Arabic begins to come to Brooklyn already in the late 19th century. You know, it's in the area first of what's now kind of Brooklyn Heights, downtown Brooklyn, Borum Hill. But then that community largely begins to move down to Bay Ridge. Bay Ridge becomes, you know, one of the great kind of Arabic speaking centers, large numbers of Yemeni Arabic speakers and Iraqi Arabic and some North African Arabic. And likewise for Chinese Brooklyn and for Fujianese and Cantonese. Chinatown in Manhattan is there from the mid-late 19th century, but in terms of Chinese Sunset Park, and then later Chinese Bensonhurst, and this whole kind of end train uh, of Chinatowns, 
It's post-65, it's even kind of later than that, mostly. And the Fujinese presence in particular really, as a strong force, dates from the 90s. The exhibits we had at Governor's Island were sort of about allowing people to actually meet individual speakers of these languages because we can talk, you know, in these large generalizations about, oh, then a large number of Fujinese speakers came and a large number of Yemeni Arabic speakers came and it's difficult to, to process. These are, these are big stories. So one of the exhibits was called Mother Tongues by a photographer named Yuri Marder, who's been working for years to take these huge, full, beautiful portrait photos of speakers that we work with from around the world in their spaces and with a line, you know, written line of their mother tongue that they've chosen kind of across the photo. And it really just kind of like brings you into their world in a very visual way. There are so many amazing stories of people from all over the world who've come here in their languages. One of the large portraits was of Garifuna speaker James Lavelle, who spent much of his life in, in Brooklyn and uh, is originally from Belize. So there it goes. Just the story of Garifuna is an amazing story. I mean, this is a, a language which is really the, the largest remaining kind of indigenous Caribbean language. It's an Arawakan language on that base. Many Arawakan languages are gone because of colonialism in the Caribbean. The people who speak it, you know, these were people being brought from Africa to be slaves who managed to escape onto the island of St. Vincent in the Caribbean, form their own society along with indigenous Arawakan Caribbean people. And then again were expelled like a century or more later by the British and had to come to Central America, to the coast of Belize and Honduras and Guatemala, and recreated another society there on the coast. Many became involved in seafaring and doing things on the water. And that's how many came to New York. And a large community formed here in the 20th century. And this incredible Afro-Indigenous, multilingual, multicultural world is now as much in New York as it is almost anywhere. And, you know, Brooklyn and the Bronx in particular. I mean, that story and the fact that that community is here, I think is just an example of what's all around us. And, and obviously, you know, the things that people have gone through to preserve the, the, the Garifuna language and to keep it going. I mean, it's uh, an ongoing project, but I think an amazing one. Yeah. I'm going to say a short prayer in the Delaware language about the Delawares and the people here that's helping us, just uh, so we could re regain the Delaware language. I will speak first in the language of the Delaware tribe. In the old Delawares, when they first brought a prayer, especially in the old big house, held up the right hand. When she my land and need a keoko and a bayok of the teesak with a hatakaskia What you lose with the loss of language diversity and of every individual language is substantial in so many ways.
It's knowledge about history, it's knowledge about migrations, it's cultural knowledge, it's oral literature, it's verbal art, it's ecological knowledge about places, it's knowledge about traditions, and it's linguistic knowledge, certainly. I mean, from a linguistic point of view, each of these languages is one of the great, you know, natural experiments in communication and has unique features that no other language has. Just because a language is bigger, has more speakers now, doesn't mean that it's, it tells us more about what language is like. Actually, on the contrary, it's often smaller languages which preserve more or tell us more about the human faculty for language. You know, this is the basis of, of linguistics and the basis of any kind of understanding about language. And Father, help us, that give us wisdom so that we can remember these things pertaining to our language. And also, so as we can keep this in uh, going. But I think just equally with all of these questions about knowledge and, you know, artistic and scientific and all of that, it's also about justice as well. Most languages are being spoken and being maintained and representing worlds that have been under threat from larger groups. Peoples who are under pressure, peoples who are on the margin in different societies who have been pressured to, to give up their languages and their cultures and their backgrounds and internalize that to the point of feeling shame and feeling that they speak somehow brokenly or something is wrong which is just from a linguistic point of view, doesn't make any sense. There's no such thing as a broken native language. Languages are not dying natural deaths. It's really about, you know, power uh, and, and justice. What's lost is also possibilities and ways of being in the world that are being cast out and are being told that this is wrong or inferior and so on, when actually, you know, this is a whole other way of being and, and, and there's a whole other set of ideas and concepts you know it's not that there isn't similarities or crossover between languages of course there there are but each language expresses and contains the life of a people over time There's a song that, that was said to blackbirds sing when they make raids on our fields. And the blackbirds sing this song. Chicken we were hot. Come out again soon. Chicken we were hot. Chitan amalsi. Lilo wangi. Chicken we were hot. Come out again soon. Chitan amalsi. Lilo wangi. Brooklyn, USA is produced by me, Karel Palmer. And me, Emily Bogosian. And me, Shirin Bahri. And me, Charlie Hoxie. And me, Bayimi Sato. With help this week from Ross Perlin, the Endangered Language Alliance, Curtis Zuniga, and the Lenape Talking Dictionary. 
You can find Ross Perlin on social media at Ross Perlin. To learn more about the Endangered Language Alliance, visit www.elalliance.org. Explore ELA's interactive language map at languagemap.nyc. And listen to more Lenape words, sentences, stories, grammars, songs, and lessons at talk-lenape.org. The Lenape Talking Dictionary is the intellectual property of the federally recognized Delaware Tribe of Indians in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. The use of any written or audio media from this site shall require the advanced written permission of the Delaware Tribe of Indians. If you want to tell us a story or somehow end up on our podcast, check the show's notes for a link to our guide on recording a voice memo on your mobile phone and sending it to us on the internet. And if you like what you hear or think that we missed something, comment, like, share, and subscribe. And follow at Brick TV on Twitter and Instagram for updates. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit www.brickartsmedia.org radio. We are on the unceded territory of the Lenni, Lenape, Canarsie, Shinnecock, and Moonsee people. We acknowledge the many indigenous nations with ties to this land, and we recognize that the Lenape still call Manahata home.